You're listening to The Devoted Podcast, where our desire is to be women devoted to the Word of God. We're so glad you're here, and we pray you'll be challenged and encouraged as we look to God's Word together. Hey guys, welcome to The Devoted Podcast. Today we are going to be joined by Nate DeCoast. He is the Kids and Youth Director, and I've known Nate for years here at Athey. Goodness, he's had all of my kids, probably in some of their worst stages, but definitely been under, under his leadership for a long time. But I've asked Nate to come on because I really appreciate so much of his teaching, and he actually did a sermon a couple weeks ago here at Athey, and it just was so many things that we have kind of talked about here on the podcast. But I just thought the way that he presented the issue of apologetics and specifically what I want to look at, what I like to call the DIY Jesus. So that's kind of where we want to go today. But Nate, thank you so much for coming on and taking the time to do this. Well, thank you so much. This is a tremendous honor to be on the podcast with you. Yeah, so fun. It's fun for me. I'm not in the closet, so I get to actually come into a real office and engage with people and stuff. It's great. Before we jump in, though, maybe just give us a little bit of your background, how long you've been here at Athey. Do a better job than what I just did. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, I came on in 2011, started out as the junior high guy, and then as things progressed and growing in, in the ministry here, started taking on more and more until we are here today. I'm overseeing all of it. And in the context of really Bible teaching and apologetics, I've always had a, dare I say, a soft spot for them. Um, but even that that journey has has evolved to a degree. Would very much love, wanted to jump in the deep end of the pool with the deep philosophy, mm-hmm. ontological kind of stuff, the really heady intellectual stuff, and really made up my mind that that is what apologetics solely was. And recently in the last three years or whatever, as the Lord's been just growing me in that, showing me that it's that is not the case, and in some ways can be almost a distraction to genuine church apologetics. And I, I, I don't think the church has made that shift as well as I would love it to. And I'm talking capital C church, you know, the big church. But there is a dynamic of we are convinced that, you know, apologetics are almost separated from the Bible. It's its own separate idea. And the Bible knows none of that idea where it's like, it's kind of all baked into the same cake. And that's where we're at. So. Yeah, I think that's a really good distinction to make because I think I had that same issue a little bit of thinking that this is more of a philosophical and very academic mm-hmm. discussion. I'm probably not smart enough to have this one. And so you just kind of stay away from it. Yeah. But when you do that in the process, you're sort of like taking away having a more intellectual faith really with, yes. with what you need. And I and I also what you were saying about taking the scariness out of it. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be an expert at this. It just it does require a little bit of work. So if you guys remember on the podcast, we have had, I've had my husband on a couple of times when we've done kitchen table apologetics. And that's just, you know, our family cheesy version of, you know, sitting around talking about things of, hey, what does the Bible say about this? You guys have heard me say that apologetics, all it is, it means is a reasoned argument for something. So in some ways, we should have an apologia about a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I I guess that's what, partly what I want to do today is, again, get y'all familiar and comfortable with this term of apologetics and not in the, I need a PhD field, but just in your everyday life of what that looks like. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that initially always freaked me out about apologetics was this notion that I'm talking someone into or arguing someone to the faith. And usually one or the other, like, and somehow they merged in the middle where I'm like, 
arguing slash talking them into becoming a Christian. Full backstory, I don't like selling things on yeah. on Craigslist. Like it's just not I don't enjoy it. <laughs> like and I've sold a few cars, you know, and things like that. But there's this element of like or even homes. There's a reason I get a real estate agent, you know what I'm saying? Where it's like, do you want it? Or I do know, you I'm not? just like, yeah, we just, just take it. <laughs> then. This I, is what it is. Well, what, what? And they're like, you know, kicking the tires. I'm like, do you want the car? Is this something that you want? Just take it. And so there's this dynamic of with apologetics, so you feel like you're in that, that mode where I'm giving you all these reasons. And especially nowadays, you see a lot of people, you're presenting all this logic and on the back end, yeah. Oh, well, okay. And you literally see they don't care. It is not because of lack of argument that they're pushing back. It's because it doesn't matter to them. And there's this reality of like, I don't care. Like you may be right. I don't care. And there's that relativism, that, that lack of absolute truth in the back of their mind where it's like how someone could say that's true for you, but not for me. It's like, well, shouldn't it just be true? But when you present this huge case and in your mind, you just nail it, right? <laughs> like, I just, I should have talked you all into being Christians. And then someone just said, no, well, oh, well, doesn't matter to me. That to me, I feel that maybe that was the beginning of the end for the way I viewed apologetics mm-hmm. in the sense of like, this doesn't seem to be working. Now, some people it works and some people it does and, and doesn't. But I know for me specifically, looking at the Bible too, or like, is this, is this what Peter did? Or is this what Paul did? And, you know, people could take you to, you know, Acts 17 and and going those routes with Sermon on Mars Hill and all that. And that's fine. I'm more talking about like this idea of persuading people into faith purely intellectually. Right. And for me personally, when that is divorced, if you would, from scripture, it gets really dicey. And you really have to have both. Mm -hmm. But you're probably, I mean, I think people could hear us saying two things here. They could be saying, wait, aren't you saying don't do apologetics? But that's, we're just saying not from the arguments only sake. Yes, exactly. And if your apologetics is simply the regurgitation of facts and, and philosophies that you've heard from other people, to whom it makes sense to, because <laughs> I mean, honestly, some sometimes it's like I got about thirty percent of that, and that thirty percent I got made a lot of sense. So I'm gonna send that thirty percent to someone else who's gonna get ten percent of that, <laughs> and, yeah. and all of a sudden, like we've diluted the product so much, and and no one's really benefited from it. Ultimately, I think there is a time and place for layman apologetics, but I also think that biblically speaking, we see a really the best model in First Peter three fifteen. And that is, in your heart, honor Christ as, as holy and being prepared to give a defense for the reason of the hope that is in you, but yet do it with meekness and respect. There's this idea of like, no, you should always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. But there's two bookends to that, and that is honoring Christ as holy in your heart and having a hope that is inside you. And what I find a lot is people who don't have a lot of hope outwardly shown in their life, trying to show the gospel as an attractive thing when their life is marked by a lack of hope. And additionally, on the flip side, usually it's one of the two where they're not honoring Christ as holy either. They just are doing whatever, you know, it's that making up your own Jesus. It's Jesus is whatever I want him to be to me at this time or you don't live a hope or combination of the two. Because if you don't worship the real Jesus, I don't know what your hope is in. 
I love that passage in First Peter and then also in Jude, because you can't deny that there definitely is a, a biblical model there that we are to have a reason yeah. for our faith. So whether you want to, what I think Nate and I are trying to say is we're trying to divorce the idea that it needs to be an argue someone to the faith exactly. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But the having reasons and understanding why you have the hope that you have, that is absolutely a biblical directive. Yes. I agree. And I think there has been a separation of this idea of a worldview mm-hmm. for Christians. Like they don't need to have a worldview. You just need to believe. And we're seeing the fruit of that easy believism where mm-hmm. you check a box, you're a Christian now versus a commitment in your life, a surrendering of your of your will to the Lord, you know, and really just true conversion versus, yeah, I went to church, Christian check. And there's a complete absence of that. And even, even still, there's I would say a moral is that that phraseology coined by Christian Smith that moralistic therapeutic deism, mm-hmm. and there's that that permeating that is almost in itself a worldview, but it's not necessarily a Christian worldview either. Where you don't you don't think like a Christian. Am I going too far? No, nope, no, nope, that's good. But actually, but define that for us. Moral therapeutic deism. I'll probably butcher this to a degree, but there's this element of it is you are a Christian. You you do Christian things. You do things to therapeutic, really appease what you think is God. You're doing the right things, but there's no real relationship. There's no real connection. I do this dutifully. In a lot of ways, this is what we do. We go to church. We we don't cuss. We don't chew. We don't go with girls that do. You know, gotcha. this is this is how we live yep. our lives. And I'm simplifying it for sure. But there's this element of we live as a lot of people might say good Christian lives, but they don't think like Christians and they don't have a biblical worldview. Their brain is not wired to what the gospel would inform them. And they don't think as informed by scripture. It is informed by far more like a leave it to beaver mm-hmm. <laughs> model than it is a biblical model, which, you know, I love leave it to beaver. Those are, those are great shows, but they're, they serve as poorly as doctrine, <laughs> if you know right. what I mean, as well, and they don't, the fruits of that don't bear out for very long. I mean, that that might bear you some time for a bit, and that might be, but at the end of the day, it's kind of shallow. Exactly. And and I think that's where a lot of people are going off, and that's where we get even to the core of what we're talking about, of a DIY Jesus, and that is this idea of, this doesn't really matter. Like, And I think it's the emperor's new clothes. Mm-hmm. Like, we're doing this, and, and the little boy's yelling at the emperor's naked <laughs> like right we're we're living our we're doing this going through these motions and i think what we're seeing in our culture today is people saying well why are we doing this like and especially when you see moral failings in the church people not being faithful to their wives and, and not practicing what they preach you see that and they, like wait you don't even believe what you're what you're preaching and now you're telling me this is come on you see people who don't know why they believe what they're believing or don't know why they're doing what they're doing, kind of calling it out on the carpet and they push back and there's no real foundation of what they believe to to ground them in the truth. And, and quite frankly, it's probably, they don't know the truth. Right. 
and that that's a problem. So so and I and I hope this is making sense on what I'm meaning by the DIY Jesus. So when I started thinking about this, and and guys, I'm I don't even know if this term is original to me. It just I don't know. I probably was watching Fixer Upper, and I I thought maybe it's this a great is, it's a great title. I, don't know. I like it. But my thought behind it is this: so there is the Jesus that is in the Gospels, and often what we keep hearing today is the Jesus would never do that. Jesus mm-hmm. is loving. Jesus would never leave that person out. Jesus would, you know, and, and they definitely camp out, especially on what they probably encapsulate as the maybe the social justice passage. Or a Jesus bit. never spoke against that Jesus sin. never spoke against that thing or or whatever. And but what my contention is, is that is a Jesus of our own making. Yes. Because you're leaving out some key areas. So maybe you can fill in the gaps that I'm leaving there with how do you see. Jesus that is really represented in the New Testament, that is in even the whole scripture, that is contradicting that Jesus that is kind of the hipster Jesus a little yeah. bit. Yeah, no, there's a lot there. Orthodox Christianity teaches Jesus is the second member of the Godhead, right? That he is God. And that's a huge statement in of itself, Jesus is not just a good moral teacher. He's not just a good dude. He is eternal God, right? And so, you know, flipping over to Colossians, you see, you know, Colossians 1, it really paints a very clear picture of Jesus. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things created through him. So this is him, not talking about an abstract God. This is talking about Jesus, him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. To me, that's kind of a mic drop moment to a degree, where you read that and you aren't left with a lot of wiggle room as to who Jesus is ultimately. And so I feel that this framework, if and this is the New Testament, not, it's not even to talk about the Old Testament, you know, but this is the New Testament that describes Jesus as Almighty God, the creator, the sustainer of the universe. And that that needs to be reckoned with, that you can't just ignore that. And so he is who he says he is. This is kind of an ongoing thing in the gospels, like, who do men say that I am? And people are always asking him, Are you this? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? Are you who are you? And this, you know, you see this coming a lot. And I think we have to get our brain space in the idea of ancient Israel where you didn't walk around with business cards. You didn't walk around with your social media tags and all that. Who is this guy? Here's my driver's license. Who, who are you? And, and they're obviously asking a deeper question than what's your name? It's we see that you are someone special. We see that you are from God, even Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, reckoned you. We see that you're from God because no one can do the things that you do unless God be with them. But we're, we're asking, who is Jesus? And Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of God. You know, Blessed be you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, right? There's this idea of 
you got this and you see that you're the Christ, you're the chosen one. But there's, there's a dynamic of you have to establish that Jesus is God. And there is no real wiggle room at, if, when you read the text, especially here. And there's others, you know, Hebrews 1, verse 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has appointed to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then that echoes really John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God, skipping down, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten son full of grace and truth. You can go on and on and on. But this is the New Testament saying Jesus is God. Yeah, I love that. Those are just such amazing scriptures because like you said, there's just not a lot of wiggle room there. Yeah. And so if folks are trying to purport the BFF Jesus, and it's not that Jesus isn't that personal side and there isn't our friend and those kinds of things, but you can't neglect this piece. That can't go anywhere and it can't contradict itself. So if this is what Jesus is, if Jesus is God, mm-hmm. then you got to make sure those other definitions that you're trying to say he is fit within that. Yeah, and I think there is a a very clear and I would even I would say perhaps well-intentioned motive that we want to make Jesus accessible to people. And I think it's based off of we don't want to see people burn in hell. <laughs> so we want them to receive Jesus. And so they're not receiving Jesus, what do we do? let's make Jesus more attractive to them. And you saw this a lot. You know, I grew up, born in the 80s, grew up in the 90s, did ministry in the 2000s. And you definitely saw the movements of Jesus being really marketed and packaged as the BFF Jesus, Mm -hmm. which is something you don't see really all throughout church history (laughs) until very recently. This idea of, you know, Jesus is your best friend. And there is dynamics of that. There's verses that, would indicate that he is our friend, friend of sinners, you know, all that. Mm-hmm. But we have absolutized that. And that's like his title. And there's this reality of, no, he's sovereign Lord of the universe. What about that one? Oh, that's really intense. We like to palette right. things for kids. And as one who writes children's curriculum and works with kids, I can definitely attest to the draw of let's make this palatable. Like let's Disneyize this. Let's make this into small bite-sized tablets for someone to chew into because almighty God, that's intense. And we do a disservice when we water down the message and ultimately water down the gospel because now you have a generation of millennials who are really indifferent or confused or, or both about the person of Jesus because there's been a, a separating from the Old Testament. There's been a a separating even from trickier passages or more profound passages in the New Testament. And now you're just narrowing it down to Sermon on the Mount and John 8, woman caught in adultery. Right, (laughs) right. Yeah. And I I actually, I liked what you said, bringing up the Old Testament. And a couple weeks ago, when I heard you speak, you you said something about how in the Old Testament, it's like there's grumpy, mean God. Mm -hmm. And then in the New Testament, you have hip, cool, loving Jesus. And we've we've separated those two and, and really tried to go, well, 
how much are we even trying to separate ourselves even from the idea of God then? Because yeah. we're kind of wanting to identify with more of the hip, cool, loving Jesus. Exactly. But you're leaving out massive parts of scripture. Yeah, exactly. I mean, read Isaiah. Read Isaiah like 41 to 48, mm -hmm. like that stretch of scripture. It just blows the idea of open theism out of the water. It blows sure. the idea of God kind of, you know, waffling on... God, <laughs> he's a effectively saying i am god and i am in charge and i know things and i am almighty mm -hmm. you know that's a little little summary of that and you read that you go yeah that's amazing and i think we as christians today need to have a much higher view of god than we yeah. do and i think that would inform us well about jesus because when we read about Sticky situations that obviously we're probably not going to put on felt boards in the in the preschool room, right? God telling the Israelites to conquer Canaan, right? Driving out the Canaanites. And we get, oh, how could God do that? And then, you know, liberal theologians come in riding on their white horses. Don't worry. I will, I will fix this. That's not what he meant. He meant love them. It's like, yeah. or th that's not who God would, would do. He would never say that. And there's this idea of you're, you're retrofitting Old Testament God to fit the New Testament really idol of God that you've erected. And, you know, and it stems right from Romans 1. You see a very similar thing to that, you know, professing to be wise. They have been fooled and they suppress the truth. In verse 19, it says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, right? Because God has shown it to them. God has revealed himself. God has revealed himself through nature. But even beyond that, God has revealed himself through his word, right? We can know who God is. And so Paul is writing to the, the Roman church who would have access to the Old Testament canon of Scripture, right? God's revealed himself. So we use this with nature a lot. You know, he reveals himself through nature. But by this point in history, God's revealed himself. We, you, can, you can know who God is. By his kindness, he's revealed himself to us. And uh, they, suppress the, they suppress it. Verse 24, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen uh, perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he has made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor gave thanks to him. And they became futile in their thinkings and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creepy things. Now we obviously think of that in the context of very rampant pagan idolatry, right? But it's really no different with how people are creating a Jesus in their own image either. You're exchanging the glory of God for a very deluded Jesus or a very, very niched Jesus that isn't God <laughs> in a sense. It's your own Jesus, DIY Jesus. And it's interesting how we, like you said, sometimes I'm not even saying that there's all bad intentions and bad motives here because sometimes it's even just our own uh, mind trying to get around what we think we can understand, which even that right there ought to be something that we would realize our own limitations. And and for me, that's the great confidence and how much I love that we have the Word of God, because you can just go, I'm just going to trust that. 
Because how can we as created beings and with our own tiny little intellect try to go, oh, I absolutely understand all of these different facets of who God is. We kind of can't. Yeah. But that's sort of the point. Yeah. And there's a, there's a very rampant idolatry of self. Yeah. Or if I don't understand it, it must not be. Or if right. if I can't control it, if I don't know it, if it, it makes me lose any of my own autonomy, then it's wrong. And frankly, that's that's idolatry of the highest order. It is. And it also it's it's interesting to me though how it's very much seeped into liberal theology and really what you see in more of the progressive church movement, mm-hmm. where they treat it more as enlightenment that they understand these things. Yes better. And yes. even that, again, that is a DIY Jesus that is not who is in the Bible. Well, and even taking a passage like from John 8, right? It's a very famous passage, a woman caught in the midst of adultery, a brutal story, really, if you look at it on the surface, you have mm-hmm. these religious, pious jerks. I mean, yeah. if you could just say it, like they're just jerks and they're trying to trap Jesus. So they find a woman caught in the act of adultery. They bring her before Jesus. This is the mantra of the the modern I would say progressive church and, you know, he draws in the dirt and Jesus calls out the men without even using words really. Right. And so they all leave one by one from the oldest to youngest as he's drawing in the dirt. And he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she goes, they're gone because they're about to stone her. And he says, neither do I condemn you go your way and sin no more. And we go see Jesus would forgive her. And if you think about that, it sounds really great. It's like, oh man, we should just forgive her and we should just move on. And I'm not saying we don't forgive. That's not the point. My point is you missed the point about Jesus with that because he said earlier in that passage, he who is without sin cast the first stone. So he had every authority to cast that stone at her. Mm-hmm. And the law required that he would do that. But because he was Jesus knowing full well he was going to atone for that very sin on the cross. Right. Right. That act of adultery, that violation of one of the Ten Commandments, he was going to pay for that on the cross. He was going to draw her into himself. He was going to forgive those sins. He knew that, right? Mm -hmm. He said, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I put this on you. Romans 8.1, there's therefore no condemnation in Christ. But that's because he bore on himself. So yeah. there's a, there's an intensity to there. It's it, not it, a light thing. It's like they almost miss, sometimes you can miss the point of that story. Like yeah. it can be more about the compassion of Jesus, which he absolutely is, and the forgiveness of Jesus, which he absolutely did show. But then you miss the fact of what's right in front of it. It's the sin itself yeah. that he knew he was going to be the propitiation for. Yeah. And, and that doesn't get the press. No, it's, but even the, the neither do I condemn you, we forget the next sentence. Now go your way and sin no more. Yeah. I mean, we, we hear that like, go your way, sin no more. It's like, stop sinning. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's what sin no more means. It's don't do this again. We don't want to focus on the sin no more. We want to focus on the other part. And so especially as... Go your way. Yeah. Especially <laughs> Neither as... Neither do I condemn you. Yeah. When it comes to like inclusion right mm-hmm. now and whether or not we are going to be accepting and even then affirming mm-hmm. of a sin... Because you're leaving off that part, though, if you do that. You're leaving off the sin no more piece. Yeah, exactly. And this idea that Jesus didn't care about adultery, I mean, that's ridiculous. Obviously, he did. He died on the cross partly for adultery. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That sin was going to be atoned for on the cross. And that's huge. We can't ignore that. And I think the framework of that, well, God didn't judge her because he 
loved her and would save her through the blood of the cross, mm-hmm. but not because he's just big hearted and winks at sin. Right. I think we've confused that. And there's no such thing as a just God that just absentmindedly pardons sin. You know, and I think that's a very westernized idea. We think in that, those terms like, well, God's love. He would never do that. He is love. You're absolutely right. He's also just and he's also holy. And those other two things need to be weighed into that as well. And I say it's western because a lot of times we don't think about families in to- war-torn countries that their families are ravished by warlords and it's just decimated or even in really intense persecution situations, not even necessarily for their faith, but just harsh living conditions by oppressing people. And, oh man, God's love. And what they often might cling to is, no, God's just. This will be atoned for someday. You know, God will make things right. We, in, in our comfortable Western world, who are, you know, especially in America, where we haven't had a lot of real open war. I mean, we, we've had our issues, obviously, but we, we've in large part lived comfortable lives. And I do mean all Americans have lived largely comfortable lives comparatively to the rest of the world. We tend to drift towards the love feeling side of things. Whereas in other parts of the world, they might drift more towards the justice side of things where it's like, we need God to be just. We pray that God would be just in this situation. And I think there is a reality to, and that stems from a worldview of where you're at and not being fully influenced by scripture, but more influenced by culture. Because if Jesus is only just the this big love guy, then what does that mean? And how do you define love? And how do you define that? And And what I really want to get at with a lot of these conversations that I have with people and teachings and ultimately what I, what I share on Sunday is we don't get to make up who God is and we don't get to make up what love is. We don't get to make, we, we are not in the position to do that. God is God and he's been God forever. And now here we are in 2021 and we're, you know what, this is what's culturally going on right now and this is what we want God to be. Well, no, that doesn't work. He is God. You know, well, I focus only on this portion of scripture. You're willfully ignoring all the rest of it. It's like opening up a novel and I'm only a chapter eight sort of guy. It's like, yeah. you don't know what else is going on in the book. And this is this is kind of like why we started talking about this from the beginning of approaching this from an apologetic side of things yeah. of having, because what what we want to challenge ourselves to do is to have a understanding of who Jesus really is, who the Bible really is, whatever issue it is that you're talking about, but not buying the soundbite mm-hmm. because we're in such an Instagram, like tweet that out, four characters, whatever it's going to be. And then you... Or the word has a period after every word. Every word for emphasis. <laughs> yes. You know, you got to really drill that home. But that's where we're... And we're not any deeper than that. So it's not surprising, I suppose, then we have all kinds of DIY Jesus. But if you're... If, if the Jesus that you are saying is Jesus is not acknowledging what sin is, all of the other things that are in the Bible of who God is. Mm-hmm. Man, that first passage you read on Colossians... You got to ask yourself, how is the Jesus that I am purporting, how is it fitting into Colossians 1.15? Because mm-hmm. if it can't do that. Yeah. I mean, and this is, Colossians leaves it with no uncertain terms, right? Right. There's not a lot of wiggle room there. And I hear this a lot too. And this is, Jesus never said anything about that. 
And that is very evident to me that you don't understand the Trinity and you don't understand that Jesus is God, right? Because mm-hmm. he never spoke against homosexuality. That's the one that's being very that popular. often, yeah. And, you know, you can get into the historical point of that. And quite frankly, we don't know. He may have, and he just wasn't recorded in Scripture for us to, to hear. But to that point, because it wasn't recorded in Scripture, it wasn't important for us to know that but that's fine i'm comfortable with that why because he did speak about a lot of other things and on his ministry that he even spoke directly about marriage directly about man and woman all that but even if he didn't if he is god the same god of colossians 115 that would be the same god as leviticus as genesis as psalms there's not a lot of wiggle room on what god's stance is on Areas like sexuality, areas of justice. There's not a lot of question marks on that, you know. And so I, I do think that that DIY Jesus is really just a willful ignoring of of who God really is. And a lot of times it's because we don't want to palette that, and we want it to be more sympathetic to our cause. And there's another really common idolatry that doesn't seem as though it's that. I'm more caring than God. Mm. <laughs> like, well, and this is where usually you hear, like, I can't believe in a God that would judge my sweet neighbor who is the nicest person ever. And your heart breaks for that, right? I oh, mean, sure. you don't want to say that gleefully, but I can't believe in a God that does that, that would judge this person. That puts you in the driver's seat of God, first and foremost, where you are saying, I have empirical knowledge on everything. I know all things. And I know the, the deepest parts of this person's heart. But it's also just ignoring the relationship between God and humanity. Like God is supremely over all things and all sin is sin against God. And you don't know the depths of that person's heart. I don't know the depths of that person's heart. The Bible says we don't know the depths of the evil in our own hearts. Right. Right. You read that in Jeremiah. And so this idea, I think it's a, a idolatry that we are more compassionate than God is just utter idolatry. It's utter nonsense. And it's this lovey-dovey culture that we have thrown out knowledge and thrown out essentially reality and we've replaced it with feelings and emotions. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a very, very dangerous thing. And we let Jesus become this moving needle of a compass that we, we make up and it's not who he is. I think there's the reality on the other side where Jesus also wasn't just this schoolmasters slapping people around. I mean, there was an attraction to Jesus. So I think there's lessons to be learned on both sides of the equation. Mm -hmm. Jesus was clearly an attractive person to sinners because they wanted to be around him, but therefore he wasn't also a sinner. So there was was this, there is a balance. And I think that both sides of of people need to learn from Jesus in that. And I think that those religious people refuse to. And I, I'm sad to say a lot of maybe religious people today aren't going to learn who Jesus really is because they are so bent on rules, mm-hmm. not grace. But should we sin so that grace may abound, heaven forbid, as Paul would say. There's a there's a balance to there. So, Which I think is why I think my encouragement to people listening and my encouragement to myself is making sure that we are 
actually studying the word for mm-hmm. who Jesus is. Coming back to kids, this is what you do. Yeah. K through 12, pretty much. B through Birth. 12, yeah. Well, you can really get into it there. Sign me up for the crazy. Exactly. So with this conversation, because I am finding like with my own kids, they're not really interested or maybe they seem interested, but the candy-coated Christianity, I don't think is serving our generations very well. So I'm wondering just from your perspective on what you do, how do you see that? It's a big issue, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I think taking that candy-coated Christianity, and I think we, one, assume kids can't handle reality as well as I feel they can. And here's the thing that I've found. Kids are creatures that lack guile. They can see through phony pretty yeah. well. And I think that that's important to know because I think a lot of times what we do is want to package, you know, this is what Jesus, and who does it all for us, kids? Jesus. Always the answer. Yeah, always the answer. And and truthfully, it is, but there's a dynamic to it where it's it's been relegated to such a trite idea. And we've put Jesus in such a tight box of, we do Bible stories, right? It's all about Bible stories. You get a, one of those kids' Bible books. It's all about the stories. But it really doesn't explore who God is in that we know that God can do miracles and things like that, mm-hmm. but we also don't understand a lot from the stories of the nature of God or that's misrepresented in how we even tell the stories. So there's one dynamic. So I think stories are great, but they must drive us to a New Testament truth. Mm-hmm. They must drive us into the person of Jesus. And they do if we, if we mm-hmm. exegete them and communicate them properly. But if we don't, it's essentially going to be Aesop fables, you know, stories and if it doesn't go beyond that we're, we're really doing ourselves and our kids a eternal disservice because just knowing about the bible let me say is not sufficient to know about god so there's that dynamic but there's also we relocate even theology to such basic brass terms that it really kids view it as, as overly simplistic because we're trying to make it so simple and it's overly simplistic and we miss out on the depth that it can have. And they, you know, grow up. Usually you don't see it until I would say fourth grade is, is kind of the time I see it. When kids start to think more, right? They can mm-hmm. they can smell that this isn't as accurate. And we always say junior high. I advocate that things that we're dealing with in junior high are systemic of what happened in fourth grade. We're attacking symptoms in junior high when we could be attacking the cause of them in fourth grade. That's a Maybe a whole nother podcast, I don't know. <laughs> but the idea is we've relegated such simple terms. And when the kids, they, they, how can this support the weight of my problems? How can this support the weight of, of my hopes, my dreams, all this? And then you have, and we send them off to college in the most vulnerable, <laughs> right. pliable years of their life or, or high school in some regards. And they get indoctrinated and... There's this idea of they don't have an established worldview. They just have very simplistic principles that... They might have some good Bible stories. They might have some good Bible stories. They have some good principles that they hold on to, but they really lack substance. And this is the model that we see where we've relocated everything to kids' ministry. And there's a movement going on that's almost like, well, kids' ministry is the problem. Do away with kids' ministry. And I, I'm, I'm not there, obviously. That would be a problem for me <laughs> professionally. But there's just a dynamic of, I don't think, I think you're misdiagnosing the problem because 
there is a shallowness to our kids' faith, and it's not the children's ministry fault. It could be that they're not doing a good job, but it's not the kids' ministry fault as much as I would say they're not being trained at home to have this be real. And I would say one thing that I really would love to impart, I guess, is your ultimate apologetic, your ultimate defending of the faith and showing the faith and revealing the hope that is in you and honoring Christ as holy starts at home. Your kids need to see the hope that is in you. Your kids need to see Jesus being real in your life. And I think that's a big problem that parents have. You know, we see divorce rates through the roof in in our culture. We see, you know, porn addictions, parents not practicing what they preach a lot. And then they turn around and they say, you need to be a Christian now Mm -hmm. because I'm a Christian. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be a Christian if that's what being a Christian is like. You know, my childhood was nothing but chaos, right? And there is a lot of damage done with a poor apologetic, right? It's this do as I say, not as I do. And I would say, sadly, because probably they don't have a fear of the Lord. They don't know the truth. It's cyclical because it, it's it's systemic. It happens to the next generation, you know. And I think the problem is we need to break that cycle and really institute in the home. The home needs to be almost like a miniature fortress of the truth where here at our home, we are in the word often and we talk about it and we live it and this is the reality of God's word and this is more than a story this is there's some theology <laughs> there I said mm-hmm. the t word <laughs> there's yeah. some theology behind this and and getting into it and hey, this is the problem i feel intimidated by that hey that's not a bad thing yeah join the club great yeah. embrace that don't run from that like kind of sit in those waters mm-hmm. because here's the thing that pushes you to make it real in your own life. Yeah. That pushes you to make it you know, getting into the word that pushes you to know who the God of the Bible is that you can communicate that to your kids, not relegate that to Nate at the, in the children's ministry. Now what I would love to do and what I hope to do and what I encourage our team to do here is we come alongside and we equipped and emboldened and in a lot of ways supplement what parents are doing at home. And this is what I describe it. If, if, if our job is supplementing, it needs to be, the meat and the potatoes need to be at home. Right. Because if you think about it, we have these kids for an hour and a half a week. Mm-hmm. That's not a sufficient not amount enough. of time nope. to develop a, a lifelong worldview. Yeah. When, you know, if you count the hours that they're at school or hanging out with friends or all that, it's way more on the other side. We need to feed our kids the truth. And I love this phrase. I've heard it multiple times from multiple different ways, but I love it is Christianity works when you do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's, it mm-hmm. sounds like such a no duh thing, but it works when you do it in the sense when you actually live a life of faith according to what God says and, and what the Bible preaches and, and what Deuteronomy tells us to instruct your kids, raise them up in the ways of the Lord, you know, on, put it on the doorposts, put it on the, you know, this is when you rise up, when you when you go down, this is what we're talking about. And have your home really be a sanctuary for the Lord. That instills in them, this is not just a trite thing that we do once a week because we have to. This is reality. This is this is the word of God. And they they grow in their knowledge of God, not their knowledge of culture, not in their knowledge of who we perceive God to be, but they grow in their knowledge of God. And then when culture comes, they're able to withstand that because they they 
they know their house is built on the rock. You know, those who hear my words and do them is the man that is built on the rock, as, you know, Matthew 7 tells us. And so we see that these kids will be stable because they're they're not just hearing Bible stories. Because what do you do with Samson, right? What do you do with the story of Samson? Oh, that's a cool story. You know, trust God or don't cut your hair. You know, and we we throw some really simple antidotes at it. But the thing is, like, you got to read the whole Bible and you got to read it consistently. And it has to be deeply entrenched in, in their minds. And that's where you bring it back to apologetics. Because apologetics needs to be kind of married, if you would, to biblical teaching. You can't really separate them. And I think we've been trained culturally to, oh, apologetics are people that you go to conferences for that you go to church for bible teaching and no i think it needs to be all baked in the same cake what you believe needs to be real in any way you slice it and you need to give a defense for the hope that is in you now if you're inclined to intellectualism god bless you that's great but you can't make that an absolute thing and i think there's some great apologists out there that really do a lot of good leg lifting for us as you know i think of like a william lane craig or someone like that who is a brilliant mind multiple phds all that and he paves paths that man i can enjoy it now it's kind of like going out and hiking where you can hike in in the mountains and a trail and not have to you can enjoy the beauty of the the landscape without having to get your machete out and like chopping through trees, you can just go through the path because someone went before you. And I think there's there's great apologists like that who've specialized in that. But if you're following that and not anchored in the meat of God's word, there's enough to sustain you in God's word that's sufficient for all you need. Yeah, I think what those uh, great apologists do sometimes is it definitely makes you, gives you that confidence of there are absolute answers Mm -hmm. for the question. See, uh, progressives and all the folks, they like to say that there's just so many questions and it's almost the questions are more important than the answers. Yeah. And it's also that maybe sometimes it's like, well, we just can't really know. And you actually can. And that's the best part. This is one thing I've been hearing a lot lately. No one's asking these questions. You're right. And it's funny. It's like, you, you know that they've been asking this for 2,000 years, sure, bro. Like, they've yeah. been, they, these aren't new questions. Like, what about this? Boom. And they, they, it's like this whole gotcha thing. Man, no one knew that. Yeah. No one's even talking about this. And what they're saying is, I went to this one Bible study that I had a bad experience with, and no one talked about this issue I had an answer for. No one, no one had an answer for this question I had. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you use that logic, if you show up to one specific spot and ask that one specific person a question and they don't know an answer, that doesn't mean that the answer isn't there. Right. And that no one knows it. Right. The whole right. point, it's a, it's a loony bin, right? It's just like, well, that guy doesn't know, but that doesn't mean the guy next to him didn't know. Right. Like, and even, like, even if it's like a small Bible study, the fact that everyone there doesn't know doesn't mean that it's not yeah. an answerable question. That's just so silly on the surface. Yep. It does reveal that your heart's going that direction anyways. Like right. you don't you're not happy with the answers that are given yep. maybe in some regards, but you're also maybe not looking in the right spots. Yes. Okay, as you guys could tell, Nate and I could probably talk for hours <laughs> and hours on this, but 
what I hope that you guys leave this encouraged by is because I think sometimes people hear, whether it's a conversation on apologetics or here we're talking about like, wait, do you really know who the Jesus of the Bible is? And maybe that even intimidates you. And maybe even if you're a mom and you're thinking, I don't know how to answer those questions. Man, I just don't ever want that to be the thing that you take away because these are things that we get to start over every day. If you are a mom that has never really taught your kids this stuff, no big deal. My family, we used to do some, you know, when there's like some emotional breakdowns in in the home and it's like, man, okay, we've gotten a little loose and all of a sudden mom's asking for things about three times when I should be asking for it once. And so we would do little family resets and we'd all circle up and I would say, okay, guys, here we go. We're going to reset the table here a little bit. You can do that on big things and you can do that on little things. So I hope that if you're a mom with kids that maybe you're thinking you've never done this before and you don't even know where to start, it's just don't stress about that. First, seek the Lord about it and have the Lord show you where to read the story of Samson and to point to who God is in that. And that's always a great place to start. So, but if you're not a mom and you're just somebody that is trying to figure out how to navigate culture and all of the different messages of who Jesus is, I'd encourage you to go back and read some of these verses that we've talked about today, specifically in Colossians, and really meditate on the fact of whether or not the Jesus that perhaps you have been looking to is the same one that's in the Bible. And again, guys, we always want to just be aligning ourselves to what the Bible says, not the other way around. Scripture is what measures us, and we are not to judge it. So, Nate, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. I really appreciate it, and we'll see you guys next week. Thank you for tuning in to The Devoted Podcast. We are a ministry of AV Creek Christian Fellowship in Westland, Oregon. For more resources, or if you need prayer or encouragement, send us an email at devotedpodcast at avcreek.com.